0: Welcome to the podcast of Seven Rivers Villages Church in Wildwood, Florida. We are a multi generational community of grace on mission, and you are always invited to join us online or in person. Learn more about us at SevenRiversVillages.org. All right, if you have a Bible with you, let me invite you to turn to Judges. Last verse, now, because to begin a series on 1 Samuel, you of course are going to start in the most logical place, in Judges. So that's, that's what we're going to do this morning. I know that sounds like a joke, but it's not, and I hope to make that plain to all of you in just a moment. Uh, we're going to begin with one verse that's repeated four times as you get towards the end of Judges, uh, the last, well, about five or six chapters or so, and uh, that's going to everything that we're going to talk about this morning as we begin this series that I'm calling uh, the Gospel of the King. So if you're willing and able in honor of God and his word, let me invite you to stand as we read Judges chapter 21 verse 25. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This is God's word. He's given it to us because he loves us and he wants us to understand him and know him and to understand and know ourselves better and our need of Christ and his provision. So let me pray and ask God to bless us as we come to his word. Our Lord Jesus, we come to you this morning. Uh, all, of, all of us in this room, with various baggage that we bring with us, various desires, longings, um, Some of us come expectant. Some of us have come into this room a bit skeptical. And so we pray that you would do what you have been doing for thousands of years, that you would meet with people as we open up your word, that you would make it powerful to our hearts and lives, that we would see ourselves in these pages and in this verse, that we would see you in our lives and at work in our world. Would you bless us and would you be with us? And Lord, I pray that you'd be with me I'm handling holy things with grubby fingers, so I pray that you would be pleased to cause your word to be powerful. And though the things I leave unsaid, you would say, and the things I overspeak, that you would uh, uh, enable people not to hear or to be, for those things to be forgotten. We ask, though that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to understand, and we ask it in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Please have a seat. So our new series is called uh, The Gospel of the King, and uh, the word gospel means literally good news. So it's the word good news, so getting information. It's an announcement. So later on in 2024, uh, we're going to get an announcement that a president has been elected. Will that be good news? Uh, we will find out when we get there. Uh, We'll see, but it will be news. It will be an announcement. And the gospel of Jesus is just that. It is news. It is an announcement. But it is the best news. Now, when I use the word gospel, and most people, when we use the word gospel, uh, talking about Christianity particularly, we're referring specifically to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We talk about that as the gospel Jesus dying for our sins. But when the Bible talks about gospel, the, the news announcement of Jesus, it's not just that particular work that he did, but it's, it's the person of Jesus himself. And it includes this topic here of uh, Jesus as the king, the gospel of the king. Now, when I was younger and uh, probably was only really aware of Jesus dying for my sins, that's really the way I thought about Christianity. Um, I didn't really give much thought to Jesus as the king, but I find myself as I'm getting older and I see the brokenness of the world around me, not just my own individual sins that make me feel guilty, but see the brokenness of people's lives and the brokenness of nations and the brokenness of communities, that I look at this idea of the gospel of the king and I say, that is fantastic. That in some ways, is as good a news as Jesus dying for our sins. And so we're going to spend some time talking about that this morning, and we're going to talk about it as we really go through this story of uh, First Samuel. Um, so what we're going to talk about this morning, we're going to talk about the story of the king, the glory of the king, and the good of the king, in that order. So first, the story of the king. Now, the, the monarchy in Israel, with King David and King Saul, these things, but was established roughly about one thousand years before the birth of Jesus. Uh, the story of the monarchy is that, but the story of the monarchy that's taking place thousand years before Jesus, is actually the story of Jesus. The Bible is one long account of the story of Jesus. So the Old Testament is just as much about salvation, grace, and faith. Grace and faith as is the New Testament, because it, too, is the story of Jesus. Now, sometimes when we read the Old Testament, we think it's an anthology of kind of hero stories, almost like Hercules and Perseus and these kinds of Greek uh, heroes. We think, well, we've got our Gideon, and we've got our Samson, and we've got other people that are kind of heroic, but they're really not what the story is about. And everything that's included in the Old Testament, we're going to see this as we go through 1 Samuel is helping us to understand who Jesus was when Jesus came and what he was going to accomplish for us. So it's all one story, particularly as we talk here about the coming of the king. It's one long story about how God would fulfill his primordial promise in Genesis 3 to send a redeemer to remove all evil from the world, to rescue the world. So Genesis 49 The identity of this coming king is prophesied. He's of the tribe of Judah. And then in Deuteronomy 17, long before there actually is a king on the scene, God is giving his people requirements for the king who's going to show up someday. And we just read at Christmas how Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises to David. So the angel Gabriel says to Mary in Luke chapter 1, verses 31 and following, he says, and behold, you, Mary will conceive in your womb, and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end, neither in geography or in time. It's not going to end. So, First Samuel records the establishment of that monarchy that Jesus came to fulfill. And Jesus himself makes reference to this in some of his last words in the whole Bible. So in Revelation, the very last chapter of the Bible, Revelation 22, Jesus refers to himself. He said, I am the root and the offspring of David. So he's saying all those promises in the Old Testament that God made to re- renew the earth, I'm the fulfillment of those things. And I have come to redeem a people for myself, and they will be brought into my kingdom when I've removed all things, and all things have been set to right. So what does the Bible mean when it says that Jesus is a king? Now, I think this is an important question, because a lot of us will say Jesus is God, and by that we mean, for many of us in the United States, he is a kind of a hypothetical proposition about ultimate reality. Is there a God, or isn't there a God? it's kind of a hypothetical question for a lot of people. Do do we know if there really is a God? And so we can tend to treat Jesus that way. It's kind of a hypothetical question. But when the Bible is talking about Jesus as the king, it's not giving us a metaphysical idea that gives our lives meaning. It's telling us that he is the authoritative reality behind everything that takes place in our lives. Right? He's a king. Not a metaphysical reality, but a king for us. Now, I, I had the opportunity one time in my life to meet someone who had become president. I actually shook hands with Ronald Reagan now when he was, when he was uh, uh, coming through Camden, South Carolina back in the day, and I've never washed his hand. I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> shook his hand, he worked, I had his business card, Ronald Reagan running for president, all these things. That was a pretty interesting moment. He's the only president I have ever met, but every president I have never met has shaped aspects of my life. They have. I've never met them. I've never seen most of them except on TV. But they've shaped my life. There's this great line from a, a band by the name of the Avet Brothers, um, Head Full of Doubt. Uh, and uh, I'm going to stand up here. I'm forgetting the line. I, I wasn't going to sing it, but was, what's my line? Oh, Your life doesn't change by the man that's elected. Just a little throwaway line, but it packs a big punch because that's the way we feel. And that's why you're nervous about 2024, is you have this idea that this person's going to be elected and it's going to change and affect your life in ways that you don't want it to be affected, right? When the Bible talks about Jesus being the king, it's saying he's going to change your life. He's in authority over everything. He's not simply a metaphysical idea. He's a real king over real people in the real world. So it's telling us that Jesus is a real authority. And it's also telling us that Jesus is not a king, as in many other kings that you could serve. It's saying that he is the king. So the Bible describes Jesus not just as a king among many kings. The Bible says he's the king of all kings. He's the king over all kings. He's the Lord over all lords. And that means that every single person on the face of the planet who has ever lived will be answerable and responsible to him. To be king means that you have authority over everyone underneath you, And what that means is that Jesus has authority over everybody because everybody is underneath him. He's the king, even of kings. It also means that he is the promised king who is going to come and reign over all of the nations, even over people who don't believe in him, right? So Jesus is Lord. He's king over Muslims that would not recognize that. Jesus is king over atheists and people who would not recognize it. Jesus is king over everybody, everywhere, all the time, whether or not they acknowledge it. That's what it's saying. And what it's saying is that Jesus is not just king for a time, but he's king for all of eternity. His kingdom will never come to an end. And that's fantastic news. So, here's what we're going to do. Over the course of our study here, we're going to look at some of the big picture ideas that are here in the book of 1 Samuel about the story of Jesus. So we're going to take a satellite view sometimes of the book of 1 Samuel and say, what is this teaching us about the coming of King Jesus? And there's going to be a lot as we go through. But then we're all, not just the satellite view, we're also going to have the the body cam view as we go through 1 Samuel. Because 1 Samuel is probably, in ancient literature, one of the deepest dives into what it meant to be a human being, right? to live in a fallen and broken world and to be dependent upon God. So as you read through 1 Samuel, it goes into the psychology of what people were struggling with and dealing with in a way that other old ancient literature did not. And so that enables us to be able to see ourselves in the brokenness of the lives of the people there and, and see how the gospel of God's grace met them and see how the grace of God reaches us and what it means to live by faith in the world. How does God meet us in the broken places of our lives in the midst of suffering and difficulty and opposition. So we're going to talk about that. So, the story of the king. It's all about Jesus. The glory of the king. Uh, Judges explains the need for a king to come. Judges 21-25, right? This is what it says. In those days, there was no king. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And as Americans, we read those words and we think, and we hear, there was no king in Israel, and we say, yay, they're doing something right, because we don't want a king, right? King George, uh, Boston Tea Party, founding documents, all of those things, we look at the idea of a king, and we say, that's a terrible idea to have a king, because when a king has power, he imposes that power on other people, that's going to be terrible. We don't want people to have that much power, because there's a problem when people have power. There's a a, a a British historian by the name of Lord Acton, and he was the one who coined that very famous phrase for us: "All power tends to corrupt; absolute power corrupts absolutely." Have you heard that? All power tends to corrupt; absolute power corrupts absolutely. But he was wrong about that. Honestly, power itself is morally neutral. Mor- morally neutral power does not corrupt a person. A corrupt person corrupts the power that he is given, that's how it works, right, and so someone who has power and incredible emptiness within himself, it, it has a deep hunger, that person is a danger, and they're going to use power to try to fill that, And use the power to feed the hunger, to try to fill that emptiness with things like reputation and prestige and wealth and ultimate power and with deep neediness, Right. And he's going to do it at the expense of other people. There's a, a famous uh, theologian in the past named Blaise Pascal who is also a scientist. And he had this phrase where he said, Inside every human heart is a God-shaped vacuum that only God himself can fill. Everybody, even people in power have that, that, that sucking sound of a hollow soul that people have within us and saying, I need these things to be whole as a person And when you have the power to use other people to fill that need within yourself, you're going to use that. And so our problem is not with a king, but our problem is with a fallen and perverted or sinful king, a distorted king who uses his power and authority for his own benefit. But what if, what if you had someone with all the power and none of the neediness who didn't have the hollow soul? who in and of himself was completely happy and completely content and completely whole and didn't need to use power to take from other people to fill some sort of gap within himself, who uses his power uh, not for his own benefit, from, from the for other people. A person with absolute power, supreme happiness, contentment, and fulfillment, overflowing with abounding love, is willing to use his authority for the benefit of, of other people. He doesn't need anything from anyone. And that's why Jesus is the person we really are looking for to be the king over all. He has all the power, none of the need. He has none of the deficiency in himself or emptiness or knowing hunger. There's no hollow place in Jesus. He lacks nothing in and of himself. He is completely, fully loved and cherished within the Trinity and always has been. He has no deficiency. And this is why he can be the perfect king because he, puts, he has everything in perspective. And he knows, the way that we don't, that those things will never fulfill. And he's already fulfilled in and of himself. And that means that he is overflowing with love and uses his power and position, not for himself, but for others. So in 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 to 10, uh, we read this. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. And sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. That word propitiation is really interesting. It it means a full satisfaction for judgment, of of judgment. And so what it means is, often we think if the king gets kidnapped... You have to pay the king's ransom for the king to be returned. It meant that Jesus paid the king's ransom for our return. He gave himself completely and fully as the king for the sake of his people. And this is what Chuck Colson said. I mean, when, when do you see a king give himself for his people? That doesn't happen. Chuck Colson was spe- uh, was writing, wrote about an episode in 1990. I think the, we have the quote up here. Yes, we do. Chuck Colson. He said, when I was in Moscow in 1990 preaching at the Moscow Baptist Church, which I'm sure was a great experience, um, just blocks from the Kremlin, I told a packed crowd of worshipers that all through human history, as far back as a recorded time and doubtless before, kings, princes, tribal chiefs, presidents, and dictators have sent their subjects into battle to die for them. Only once in human history has a king not sent his subject to die for him but instead died for his subjects. This is the king who introduces the kingdom and cannot be shaken because this king reigns eternally. Jesus is not like all the other kings that we're fearful of taking that office. He's the only one we want to take that office. This is what N.T. Wright said. He wrote, the gospel in the New Testament is the good news that God, the world's creator, is at last becoming king. And that Jesus, whom this God raised from the dead, is the world's true leader. So the whole message of the gospel is there is one person who's going to turn everything around. There's one person who's going to bring about full reversal. There's one person who's going to bring redemption. It can only take place in the hands of this person. Not parliaments, not presidents, not congresses. It will be Jesus. He's the one who will turn everything around. So in Psalm 97, I was reading this morning, and uh, we read, the Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice. Because the Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice. And because when we see the Lord, Jesus, that's who it's talking about. Jesus reigns. And he used his power to heal broken bodies. He used his power to feed the hungry. He used his power to to go to the cross and take on our sin. And in fact, he emptied himself of his power. He, he set it aside for our sakes so that he could be killed on our behalf on the cross. This is a king that we can serve. So, story of the king, glory of the king, the good of the king. The reason we're beginning our, our study of First Samuel by just looking at this one verse from Judges, is because it explains the need for a king, particularly this king we're talking about. They needed one central ruler who would bring unity and justice and peace to the land. So what would a king do? And what are we expecting Jesus to do as king? Well, one is the king would be a powerful defender to provide safety from outside dangers, enemies, and attack. So the first part of Judges, probably chapters 1 through 16, kind of deals with the overall theme of all of these surrounding nations that uh, invade, these marauding nations who come in and attack Israel. There's a longer story to that. Uh, But these are people like the Midianites and Ammonites and Philistines. And so God raised up Judges, who are regional leaders, who arise just for the sake of this need, largely, to drive out the invaders. And so those would be people like Samson, Samson, and Gideon and other people you read about in the book of Judges. So what it's talking about is God protecting his people from these external forces that would threaten to destroy them or overrun them or to oppress them. And as we look at the coming of Jesus, he's a better, more permanent solution to this because he's not simply coming to, rem- to deal with immediate issues and immediate problems that are here. He's not just dealing with things that cause pain. He's dealing with pain as a concept, period. And as you go to the end of the Bible, and it talks about what Jesus has come to do, he says, now the kingdom of God has come, and there will be no more weeping or crying or mourning or pain or death because the old order has been taken away because Jesus has taken the throne, and he's now removed all of those things. And that's what we're looking forward to. So Jesus to uh, defeat those things once and for all. And what that means for us in our lives is... Two things. One is you can read through the Psalms and you see this as the psalmist crying out for God to come and help them in the midst of their struggle. You see this in the book of Acts when the apostles are being oppressed and they're being persecuted by the Jews and others. They pray and God delivers them. So that means that God is at work in your life. You can pray to him and say, Lord, step in to help me in the midst of the broken thing I'm dealing with. But sometimes he says no, and he has the authority to say no, that this thing is going to stay because he's, in his mind, what we see in scripture, and one of, at least one of the reasons is he's still using that in our lives. Uh, he would not let us go through difficult things if he did not have some sort of redemptive purpose in it because he loves us. So even when he says no to the prayer that we're asking, it's because he knows there's something better that he's bringing in our lives and in the world through it because he's the king and he knows all sorts of things that we do not know and he orders the world as he sees fit. Second thing the king would do, the king would be a wise judge to establish true justice. So beginning in Judges 17, we see that the focus is no longer on the external problems that are invading uh, Israel, we see that the problems are internal within Israel itself. So these are, this is when we see the verse that we're looking at expressed four times in four different places towards the end of Judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So on one level, it is a statement of political fact. There was no king at this point. I sent a video out in our newsletter talking about that this week. On another level, this is a statement about the human heart and community. There was no uniting moral authority, and people just were kind of like flying by the seat of their pants doing whatever felt right to them. And because we all have this hollow soul that's going on inside of us, they were making all kinds of bad choices. So here are a few. These are the verses where it says, uh, in those days, there was no king in Israel, and what's going on with that? So in chapter 17, it says, Everyone did what well was right in his own eyes. Micah was the name of a person who made, kind of made up his own religion, and he called it the worship of God. He took elements from what the Bible actually said about worshiping God, and he made it his own. He made an idol, which you're not supposed to do, and he worshiped this thing, and he called it God. And that became a big issue between him and other people. Chapter 18, verse 1. One of the tribes, uh, the tribe of Dan, uh, took these accoutrements that Micah had had made and they used it to say, the Lord is with us. And so they went and attacked a peaceful neighboring people and utterly wiped them out in order to possess their territory. So they were becoming the problem. In chapter 19, verse 1, uh, this phrase is said, Everyone did what is right in his own eyes. And uh, I dare you to read Judges chapter 19, because it is one of the most gruesome episodes in the whole Bible. And sometimes people say, how is this even in the Bible? Uh, This cannot be morally upheld as something that God wants us to do, and it's right. You're not. It's it's not upheld as something. It is something that's horrible, and the Bible records horrible things to show why we need Jesus, right? So in chapter 19, verse 1, there is gang violence, there is rape, there is dismemberment. It's ugly. And then when the tribes of Israel come in to try to bring the perpetrators to justice, then tribal warfare erupts, and they won't release these perpetrators uh, to be tried. It's horrible. And then in 2125, after the nations of Israel had basically decimated the tribes of Benjamin, and they realized, oh, my goodness, Benjamin's going to be gone. There are only going to be 11 tribes. God, how could you allow this to happen? (laughs) Blaming God for it. And uh, so at this point, they say, you know what we need to do? There's going to be this festival in Shiloh, and we're going to tell the Benjamites to go and kidnap all the women who are there. They can get their hands on and bring them back to their home and make them their wives. Doesn't that sound like a good idea, right? And so that's what they do. And they're told, and, you know, these are people's wives, their daughters, other people that are being kidnapped. You know, their daughters are being kidnapped. And so at this point, the leaders of Israel say, So when people come to you and say, you can't do this, say, uh, just do us a solid, basically. Do this for us and just allow it to happen this one time. It's kind of like, this is terrible. There's no justice. People are flying by the sea. Uh, You get the sense when you're reading it that Israel's like uh, a a kid, maybe 11 years old, who steals the family car and doesn't know how to drive. His feet barely reach the pedals, and he overcorrects on everything and just goes smashing along the walls. Like, I'm going too far left. I go right, too far left, go right. That's the way we kind of feel as you're reading through Judges. It's like they are overcorrecting, undercorrecting. This is a—they're on a collision course. This is terrible, and so he's saying they need a king. The king must be wise and not rash. He must not be a person driven by passions, but directed by wisdom and righteousness. The king would need to establish just laws that directed the people, uh, the behavior of the people towards one another. And he must have authority to pronounce judgment even over people who did not want to submit to it the way that the Benjamites did not want to submit to it in their day. So he has to be someone who uh, can defend. He has to be someone who can judge. But he also has to be someone who can be an authoritative unifier to bring stability. Judges 21, 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. I feel the weight of that. Do you feel the weight of that? Where we are in our particular cultural moment right now. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. We have the assumption that people with good nature are going to get along, but we're finding out right now that this can't happen. It's not happening. Because we're not united on the fundamental questions of life. Right. The framers of our constitution, this, I'm not getting political, I'm just talking about Jesus as king, right? Jesus. If, you, uh, if I get political about anything, it's about Jesus. So this is just a statement about us, right? The cultural note. So uh, our, the framers of our constitution said we hold these truths to be self-evident. Now the reason the framers of our constitution thought these things were self-evident was because their historical background had been in a Christianized Europe. And people had been so affected by, had been so steeped in Christian doctrine and Christian Ideas that, of course, these are the things that must happen. Just it's self-evident. But people in ancient Rome wouldn't have thought they were self-evident. People in uh, Muslims didn't believe that these things were self-evident. Hindus didn't teach these things. They came from Jesus, who loved outcasts and calls us to love all of our neighbors as ourselves. And as we're moving away from, culturally, this kind of Christianized uh, sense that things are self-evident... We're experiencing a continental drift, and we can feel it. Uh, people being, uh, coming from different perspectives, uh, having different views, and not being able to agree. And whatever once was united is now dividing up based on different worldviews, different values, different uh, ideas about what's right and wrong. So we can talk about being united as a nation on our central principles, but we're not united on those things anymore. And we hold personal truth as the idea that's self-evident. Of course, people should be able to decide for ourselves. Of course, this is the way, this is exactly what he's talking about. This is where we all go. I go this way and you go this way. And so we long for unity, but we can't bring it about. We long for peace, but it doesn't seem to materialize. We long for justice, but we're not even sure what the issues are pertaining to justice anymore. It's a fascinating thing that's happening right now. I don't know if you're aware of it, is there are a lot of people in uh, kind of intelligentsia, academic circles in the United States, who are beginning to challenge the secular ideals of our nation. There's, I've been reading a book right now called The Surprising Rebirth of Belief in God by a guy named Justin Briarley. He did a, a podcast in which he would often get a Christian and somebody who was not a Christian to talk about issues. And he said for a long time there was, a, was very abrasive between uh, people who are not Christians and Christians talking about these ideas, but he said as it's gone on and they've seen our culture becoming more polarized and, and split apart, particularly over identity politics, he's finding that the, the cultural intelligentsia, that secular intelligentsia, are saying maybe there's something to this Christianity thing. Maybe we do need some uniting principles so that we can actually function as a society. Right? We might need those things. And one of the things they go to quite a bit is uh, are justice issues and particularly pr- protecting victims of injustice and violence and other things because what they're realizing is if there is no moral authority outside of ourselves and we have no r- real right to be able to call anything good or bad, right? Victimhood becomes an invented concept because no one talks about victims when it's between uh, eaters and ants or victims between sharks and fish, or between crocodiles and wildebeest. Nature just doesn't care about those things. So just a nature without a god doesn't care about victims. It doesn't care about pain. It's just a part of it. So a godless nature doesn't impose such categories. So this is what people are realizing. If there are no more moral absolutes, there are no crimes. And if there are no crimes, then there are no victims. If there is no such thing as a moral absolute, why should any of us care about marginalized people or oppressed people? Why should anyone care about civil rights? We need a king. We need an authority outside of ourselves. We need Jesus. We need an authority to tell us when we're wrong. We need an authority outside of us to tell us when we are called to obey, even when it's hard, and we don't want to. Uh, we need someone to tell us when we are, that we are called to forgive when we want to seek revenge. To bless when we want to curse. And to help when we feel indifferent. And it's not just my opinion and your opinion, but it's an authority outside of us. Don't you wish that Hamas and Israel both agreed on the same authoritative voice and said, this is the authoritative voice that's speaking. Don't you wish that Ukraine and Russia both submitted to the same authoritative voice. Don't you wish that in the United States, that in terms of our political parties, we had this one authoritative voice that could speak to both sides and bring unity in the midst of We need an external voice, an external authority, an external standard giver. But a merely human king couldn't do it. Sinful kings need something from their office. They need power. They need applause. They need wealth. They need influence. They need control. And because they're corrupted from within and without, they use power to oppress. But Jesus is not like a human king, nor is his kingdom like a human kingdom. He lays down his life for his people. He didn't take his throne by conquest, but by sacrifice. And the good news is that Jesus has redeemed us from our sins. He's the cosmic king, and one day he's going to bring the full extent of righteousness and peace and joy to the full extent of the whole world and all who call upon him. And what we're going to see, the Bible says, is that people from every tribe and every nation and every background will side by side, willingly and joyfully bow before King Jesus as he brings a unity that nothing we've ever tried can bring. Have you ever seen that in your life? Have you ever been abroad and experienced that to some degree? Let me tell you a story. So, several years ago, uh, I went to uh, a mission trip to a city in, in Mexico, and uh, we stayed in people's houses. And the person that, whose house I stayed in was named Dr. Alvarez. And uh, he was a local doctor, very well respected man, one of the leaders in this particular church. And uh, I stayed in the same house with about seven college guys. And uh, we were, I'm goofy, and they were obnoxious. So, it was, they were being loud in the house, and we, you know, it's like, guys, you gotta settle down. This is a very different culture. You, you can't do this. But they were college guys and got out of control, clogged toilets, did everything. So, um, yes, I know. So, he kept, uh, so Dr. Alvarez was watching us kind of askance the whole time. And I know internally, just from like facial expression, he was trying to be past, you know, blank face, but I could tell he was critiquing us. And felt like we were just like every other American he'd ever seen on American television. And he was probably right. Um, He wanted nothing to do with us at all. And uh, to be honest, I was a little bit, uh, you know, standoffish from him. Just like, okay, these are just kids. Just deal with us. So on Wednesday of that week when we were there, there was a national holiday. And so the entire church, probably about this size, went to the River Guayalajeo. And so we had a conference that was there. And all my students were being obnoxious. They went in the water when they shouldn't have. One of the kids got leeches. It's crazy. So just all this stuff going on. So uh, le- that night, you know, they, they, they fixed food. I'm standing by the banks of the river Guaylajeo, and I had this young 19-year-old Mexican young man who was my translator named Arturo. And they're wanting me to teach on a doctrine called limited atonement, which basically means that when Jesus was dying on a cross, he was actually accomplishing salvation, not just making it available, but accomplishing it. So I was preaching on this, and as I was preaching, I would gesture and say something and then wait for my translator, and I looked over, and he was doing the exact same thing. It was just like this, this moment where we're in this together. And at this one point as we're teaching, as I'm teaching, uh, I was trying to explain that when Jesus was on the cross, he wasn't dying for faceless humanity— he knew who he was dying for that day. So I went through and I said, so that, when Jesus was on the cross, he was dying for Matt, who was one of my students. He was dying for Dr. Alvarez. He was dying for Josephine. And he was dying for Emily. And I just went through all of these various names of people. And Arturo was doing this along with me. And it was just this powerful moment. I, I can't explain it. Just this powerful moment in the whole thing. And so they wanted to do a and a which is almost impossible. And you're doing that across the language barrier. So... We uh, fielded some questions, and the first two, I, I kind of made my way through it. And then the third question a guy was asking, I did not understand the cultural issues that were taking place. But Dr. Alvarez got up, and it was clear that he was a very respected person. He got up, and he answered the question that I was struggling to answer. And at that moment, I locked eyes with him, and he locked eyes with me, and we understood his king is my king. And his Savior is my Savior. And we're talking about the same person, even though we're from these various cultural backgrounds. Now, here's the amazing thing. Like, like we, we bonded just across looking and over Jesus. So that night, he did something that he hadn't done the whole time. He got to know us. So he took out me and all the, the seven guys who had been ransacking his house for the past week. And uh, he took us to McDonald's, which is as close as he could get to American food, I think he felt like. And so he sat down, and with his broken English, as best he could, he told us his story and his testimony. And there was the realization of him saying, Your Jesus is my Jesus, and your story is my story. Now, our politics would never have done that. Our nationalities would never have done that. Only Jesus can do that. Only Jesus can bring that kind of unity. So as we're we're talking about the good news of the king, as we're talking about this, understand it's good news for you and it's good news for the world. It really is. So what do we do with this? Well, I think you and I are called to do the same thing that the apostles were called to do, is go into the world and say, this is the person we need. It's not about morals. It's not about politics. It's not about all the things that we try to make it about. It's about this person and his ability to unite because he has the ability to save, he has the wisdom to rule, and he's the one. He's the one that we're looking for and waiting for that can bind us together. It will be Jesus alone who unites. Jesus is the king. Let me pray for us. This is your word. You've made it clear your intent to fulfill this passage from judges, to bring a king to people who have a hollow soul, to redeem us from our sins, to bring life when there was death, to bring healing when there was brokenness, uh, to bring a real people under one king who are united fully and completely, not because of our social things that we carry, but because of you. We pray that you would help us to live this out. We pray that you would help us to live as those who have experienced your grace, that your grace would be a defining characteristic of us as kingdom people, that your love, your fullness, your happiness, your gift of grace to us, that these would define us and nothing else. Would you bless us? Would you be with us? And would you receive this last song as a hymn of response to you and your glory and grace? And we ask it in your name. Amen. Thank you for joining us on this podcast, a production of Seven Rivers Villages Church in Wildwood, Florida. Learn more at sevenriversvillages.org.